Welcome to episode 82, the truth about how the United States is supposed to conduct war. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the War Powers Act, the killing of Qasim Soleimani, democracies, hate speech, or celebrities comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video versions of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute.com, and Brighton.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Twitter and Facebook advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In episode 81, The Truth About the Killing of Qasim Soleimani, I unexpectedly ended up spending quite a bit of time on America's penchant for perpetual war. I had not intended to go in that direction when I started researching the topic. I really just wanted to get to the truth of the incident and cut through the lies and propaganda from both sides. Trump and the GOP were all hyped up about it, and of course the Democrats took the opposite tact and called it a war crime, an assassination, and found themselves defending the Iranian regime. I highlighted the lying that the American people have been subjected to virtually every time we send our kids overseas to die. The most recent proof of this is the Washington Post's expose called the Afghan Papers. I encourage you to check it out. Well, what about the Vietnam War? Remember the Gulf of Tonkin? What about World War I and World War II? There were enough lies coming out of the Wilson and Roosevelt administrations to fill a couple book volumes. What about the war in Iraq? Remember weapons of mass destruction? What about the supposed chemical weapons attack in Syria? What about Obama's involvement in Egypt and Libya and Syria? I also produced a list of America's military or intelligence excursions overseas. They included Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Grenada, Panama, Yugoslavia, the Korean Peninsula, the Philippines, Vietnam, Chile, Egypt, Kosovo, Somalia, Congo. Currently, we're involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen. How is it that the, quote, national security of the United States of America is so often impacted? We're like the caricature of the millennial on a college campus that we love making fun of. You know what I'm talking about. They get triggered. That's the U.S.'s foreign policy. We get triggered when the Soviet Union tried to position missiles in Cuba. We were triggered when the Iranians nationalized British oil interests in Iran. We were triggered when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. We were triggered when a Central American leader cozied up to the Soviet Union. We were triggered when the North Koreans invaded South Korea. We were triggered when the North Vietnamese government leaned towards communism. What triggered us in Operation Iraqi Freedom? WMDs, of course. What triggered us in Afghanistan? 9-11. Okay, fair enough, but why are we still there? What triggered us in Syria? A fake chemical weapons attack. What triggered our participation in the genocide in Yemen? The Saudis? What about Somalia? Do you not see the pattern here? But that isn't really what I want to talk about. Rather than talk about where the U.S. military has been or currently is, I want to focus on the how. How is the United States' war-making capabilities supposed to be carried out and applied? 
Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. The President, meanwhile, derives the power to direct the military after a Congressional Declaration of War from Article 2, Section 2, which names the President Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. These provisions require cooperation between the President and Congress regarding military affairs, with Congress funding or declaring the operation and the President directing it. The relevant part of Article 1, Section 8, the article that enumerates the limited powers to the federal government, states that Congress shall have the power to coin money, establish post office and post roads, deal with counterfeiters, regulate commerce with foreign nations, and collect uniform taxes, duties, and excise. But the majority of the 18 clauses deal with the military, or in that day, militias. Things like punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, raise and support armies, provide and maintain the navy, calling forth the militia. Well, then we have Article 2, Section 2, which reads, The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into actual service of the United States. So, what do we make of this? Well, let's start with what the word war means in the context of the Constitution, since that is supposed to be the rulebook by which we play this game known as the United States of America. According to constitutional scholar Rob Nadelson, in 2011, he said, quote, Founding-era dictionaries and other sources, both legal and lay, tell us that when the Constitution was approved, war consisted of any hostilities initiated by a sovereign over opposition. A very typical dictionary definition was something like the exercise of violence under sovereign command against such as oppose. He goes on to say, I have found no suggestion in any contemporary sources that operations of the kind that the United States is conducting are anything but war, end quote. Why is it important to understand what the word war meant back in the 18th century as opposed to today? Because the definitions are different. It's that simple. Declaring war in the modern sense is a formal process. That's why you'll hear people say things like a formal declaration of war. Why the qualifier? Because war is not just an official event, a specific date whereby the United States declares war against fill-in-the-blank. War, per the Constitution, is hostilities, or, quote, the exercise of violence under sovereign command, end quote. So the Constitution prescribes a civilian commander-in-chief of the armed forces, i.e. the president. That provides a level of checks against military generals gaining too much power. On top of that, the Constitution prescribes that Congress decides when and where our military is deployed, not the President. That revelation in and of itself is at the heart of this episode. Remember, Article 2, Section 2 reads, The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. Okay, so I want you to remember that phrase, when called into the actual service of the United States. Well, how are they called into the actual service? Congress. Therefore, every instance a president unilaterally deploy the military without the consent of Congress, i.e. a declaration of war, that president violated his oath of office, and to take it a step further, should have been impeached by Congress. See episode 68, The Truth About Impeachment, for more about that. I imagine many of you think this is a radical position to take, claiming that virtually every president should have been impeached. What's radical about it? I'm just reading the Constitution. I'm just reading the words of people who debated the ratification of the Constitution at the state conventions. I'm not the one who violated the Constitution. Presidents are not empowered to make war. They execute it. What do I mean by that? Well, per the Constitution, we have Congress declaring war, 
You know, they're the ones making the decision on behalf of the people that they represent. And the head of the executive branch executes Congress's plan or he vetoes it. It's no different than the legislative process. Congress passes laws, sends them to the president for a signature or a veto. It's checks and balances. In other words, the power to declare war is different from the power to make war. The former belongs to Congress, the latter to the president. Michael D. Ramsey, writing for the Originalism blog, put it this way, quote, In an authorized war, Congress cannot give tactical directions to the president. I see the core of the Declare War Clause to be a prohibition on presidents initiating war. The difficult question is whether Congress can prohibit a military response when the president would otherwise have independent authority to respond. I'm inclined to think Congress has this power as necessary and proper to its Declare War power to preserve its power to decide when and whether a war should start or continue. In any event, it seems clear that Congress could prohibit expenditures on military responses, including against specific countries, end quote. So let's circle back to the killing of the Iranian general Soleimani and see how this fits into this rather lengthy constitutional discussion. The Democrats insist Trump violated the War Powers Act of 1973, and they passed a non-binding resolution in the House condemning the strike. If they really were opposed to what Trump was doing, they would start reducing the funding of the military. But they don't, which is proof that they really don't have a problem with war, even if it's being waged unconstitutionally and specifically ignores their own powers. Republicans responded to the Dems' claim that by declaring that the War Powers Act is unconstitutional because it places too many limits on the president's military action. Are the Republicans correct that the War Powers Act is unconstitutional? Yes, they are, but not for the reasons that they claim, that it illegally constricts presidential action. Actually, the reason it is unconstitutional is because it unconstitutionally enlarges presidential powers. See, at that point in 1973, Congress was really pissed at Nixon, and they were tired of the Vietnam War, a war that they had the power to defund all along but chose not to. So instead of telling JFK or LBJ or Nixon that they were no longer going to fund the war and they end it, they took a cowardly approach, pass a law that actually weakens their own constitutionally granted powers, the War Powers Act of 1973. This law requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of military action and demands the withdrawal of troops within 60 days unless otherwise authorized by Congress. There is one caveat. There is one caveat. The president is allowed 30 more days if he or she, quote, determines and certifies to the Congress in writing that unavoidable military necessity respecting the safety of the United States armed forces requires the continued use of such armed forces in the course of bringing about a prompt removal of such forces, end quote. So, as Harry Blaine, writing for Foreign Policy and Focus, put it, quote, by then we're already at war. And war usually means an emboldened president, sublime media, and hesitant judiciary. Once it starts, it's hard to stop, even if popular support is lukewarm. Think about Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, among other protracted catastrophes. End quote. Here's how Section 2 of the War Powers Act articulates the purpose of that law. Quote, to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution of the United States, and ensure the collective judgment of both Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of United States armed forces into hostilities, or into situations where eminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances, and to the continued use of such force in hostilities or in such situations." End quote. 
In congressional debates, Senator Hubert Humphreys put it more bluntly, quote, When a president initiates a war, he is taking away a power from Congress. His act is unconstitutional. He is breaking the law, end quote. I am constantly amazed at the constitutional ignorance of the people we elect. The people we elect who swear an oath to defend and protect the Constitution. Think about what I just read about Section 2 of the War Powers Act. There is no need to ensure anything. The Constitution is clear. Congress has the power and the tools to stop any president's military ambitions cold in its tracks, simply deny the funding and or impeach the president. There never was, nor is there currently, a need for the War Powers Act. The founding generation resoundingly dismissed the idea of broad war-making abilities by the president because they insisted that he not have anything close to the authority of the King of Great Britain. In essence, they didn't want to create an American king with unlimited power of the sword. The founders' motivations were articulated well by John Jay in Federalist No. 4 when he said, quote, Absolute monarchs will often make war when their nations are to get nothing by it, but for the purposes and objects merely personal, such as thirst for military glory, revenge for personal affronts, ambition or private compacts to aggrandize or support their particular families or partisans, end quote. So which modern presidents have violated the War Powers Act? Most, if not all. Clinton violated it in Kosovo. The Bushes never got declarations of war from Congress. They did get authorizations, which some would claim meet the constitutional standard, but Congress was still left off the hook by not forcing them to actually declare war. And when it comes to these authorizations, were they given with no expiration date? I mean, how many decades do we have to send our boys and girls to Afghanistan and Iraq? Obama, the peace president, violated the War Powers Act in Libya, Egypt, and Syria. And while Donald Trump hasn't started any new wars, thank God, he has continued them and, of course, has killed more than a few terrorists and an Iranian general. Congress has done little to discourage these oversteps. Hell, even think back to before 1973. Did Congress declare war on North Korea or Vietnam? Hell no. Congress last declared war on June 4, 1942 against Nazi allies Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. Since then, more than 100,000 Americans have died in undeclared wars around the world. The bottom line flaw is, the War Powers Act allows the president to act first. That is unconstitutional. As I have repeatedly pointed out in other episodes, I lay much of what ails America right at the feet of Congress for their continued abdication of their constitutional duties, which they have done in a stunning fashion over the decades. Think about it. Spending. Do they ever cut it? Hell no. They refuse to use the tool of impeachment to rebuke constitutional overreach by the executive branch. Think about the IRS targeting of Tea Party groups, executive agencies that violate the constitutional rights of citizens like the Bureau of Land Management, the EPA, the NSA, and hundreds of others. They pass unconstitutional laws like the Patriot Act, Medicare Part D, and Obamacare. But the most egregious is the surrender of the war-making powers. By doing that, I guess congressmen think they will never have to face their constituents whose son or daughter is killed in some far-off country for little or no reason. They can slough it off on whoever is sitting in the Oval Office. This War Powers Act lets lawmakers off the hook. They are often reluctant to take a position on exercising military power, allowing them later to stand with presidents when things go well and criticize them when it doesn't. 
I'm going to conclude this episode the same way I did episode number 68, The Truth About Impeachment. Had Congress not abdicated its constitutional duties over the decades and centuries, i.e., using impeachment and withholding funding from unconstitutional programs, wars, and federal agencies, America would be much more stable, and I believe we would be less divided and more principle-driven if for no other reason than the threat of impeachment hanging over the head of every federal official, whether they be elected, appointed, or employed. If you're looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many of the topics tackled here on the TruthQuest podcast, grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, spelled with a P like Peter. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. In it, I tackle dozens of public policy issues, from the flat tax and the economic collapse in 2008 to gay marriage and voter ID laws. It's available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more information. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.